an unlikely and implausible convert. We come to, in our series of the champions of the church, we come to this guy named Saul, or Paul. And I will tell you, I'm just going to go ahead and give you a warning now. I'm going to use those interchangeably, all right? Uh, To be clear, his name was Saul, and then later he is known as Paul after the transforming work in his life. So at this point, he is referred to as Saul throughout Scripture, but in my mind, I've read the rest of the story. And so uh, sometimes I will think of him as Saul, sometimes I will think of him as Paul. And so don't, uh, in your minds you can correct me if you want to, but just know who it is that I'm talking about when, when we get to that passage of Scripture. Have you ever known a bad person? I, I, don't, mean, I don't mean just somebody you didn't like. I mean a bad person. An evil person, a person who does evil, who intentionally works for the harm of others. A person who, in today's culture, they would call a psychopath or a sociopath or someone who is just vindictive. I know that we see portrayals of people like this on TV. I do not know how often in life we actually have those kinds of experiences with people that are bad. But I want you to picture in your mind somebody that you know of that would be classified as an evil person, as a wicked person, as a harmful person, as a mean person, as an abuser. Uh, Someone who abuses verbally, someone who abuses physically. And the question that we ask then is, did the Lord Jesus Christ die for them? Is John 3.16 for them? Can God love them? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the world. That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Is there anyone beyond the reach of God's grace? This morning when we're talking about the champions of the church, we're going to talk about the conversion of Paul the missionary. And Paul the missionary is who he ultimately becomes, but he is not that in our text today. He is Saul of Tarsus. And I want to tell you just a little bit about him to lay the background. You guys are familiar as we've been studying through the book of Acts, the launch of the church, how that at Pentecost the Holy Spirit came in power upon the disciples and how that they preached. And all of a sudden there's this radically change in how God relates to the world and how people can relate to God. It's through the provision of the Lord Jesus Christ and through his death and through his, the shedding of his blood and his burial and his resurrection And now he has ascended to the Father. And now because he has ascended to the Father, the Father has sent the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead. He is God, the Holy Spirit, who has been poured out upon his people. And our relationship with him is different. He's been preexistent, been here since creation, but now he indwells believers. We've talked about that many times. We've seen how the church is launched and how the good news of the gospel is being spread and how that Jewish people who have been bound in the tradition of sacrifices and bound in the tradition of temple worship, are all of a sudden seeing that 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 has been replaced in the Lord Jesus Christ. No further sacrifice needed because Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, has been the complete and total sacrifice. No further priestly caste needed because now there is one high priest that we... and, And we all have access to God the Father. We don't need to go through a mediator there's one mediator between God and man and that is the Lord Jesus Christ and so this is a radical change that is taking place 
We've seen how that Peter and John evangelized, how that God used Stephen to share the gospel with the Hellenistic Jews in the synagogues, and how the end result of that was he got to present the gospel before the Sanhedrin, and they were so angered at his message and his condemnation of them that they took him out and stoned him. And that's where we really, in the text, first come across this guy named Saul. But before we get to that, I want to give you a little bit of his background. He is Saul of Tarsus. Y'all like geography? History and geography keeps you on the edge of your seat in school, doesn't it? Uh, Tarsus is a town. It's in Cilicia. It's in Asia Minor. And it's a, a town where there's a great big university. As a matter of fact, the three leading universities of the day were in Athens, Greece, Alexandria, Egypt, and Tarsus of Cilicia in Asia Minor. Uh, Saul was uh, born to a family probably fairly wealthy because they sent him to study at the feet of Gamaliel. And there are other indications in his testimonies that he had some affluence. His parents wanted him to be educated very well. And so they sent him to Jerusalem at the age of 13. If he follows the tradition, he would have been sent to Jerusalem to a boarding type school to sit at the feet of Gamaliel, the leading Jewish scholar of his day. As a matter of fact, he was such a scholar of the Jews... That Gamaliel, who we've already met earlier in the book of Acts, was known as the beauty of the law. Simply meaning that when he taught the law, it was beautiful. His understanding, his grasp, and his his scope. And so Paul was sent to study at his feet. Uh, Saul, his father, was a Roman citizen. And he passed his Roman citizenship because his father, his family, was a Roman citizen. Saul was made a Roman citizen by birth. Um... He, after his studies in Jerusalem as a younger man, after several years of studies, and by the way, this would have been rigorous study. This would have been memorizing whole passages of the Old Testament. This would have been taking portions of the law and the prophets and the histories and reciting those and applying those to the Jewish traditions and the Jewish life. There would have been a lot of argument and debate over what they mean for life today. So it would have been rigorous study, and after studying, he would have returned home to Tarsus. Now, this is how Paul describes his life as a young man. We find him now back in Jerusalem. Not sure why he came back to Jerusalem, but he's back in Jerusalem. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul is talking about his pre-conversion life, and he says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, I was a good guy. I followed all the rules. I had some successes because I had reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, it would be me. I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as the zeal, a persecutor of the church, as the As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul says, I lived as upright a life as I could have lived. I was righteous, I was good, I was a Pharisee, I I followed the law, and as to the law, I did everything that the law required, required. So he was very devout. He was a Hellenistic Jew, he was a Jew that was from outside of Jerusalem, but he was in Jerusalem at this time, he was devout. And he was zealous. And he sees, as do many, that this teaching of Jesus as the Messiah, this new way, this, this transition that is taking place at the launch of the church, he sees them as heretics. They, they're going against what my dad taught me. They're going against what my school taught me. They're going against what my priest taught me. And if I'm going to follow God, I'm going to follow God the way I've always followed God. 
God established the animal sacrifice system. We need to keep it up. God established the priesthood. We need to keep it up. God established this and God established this. And this is the way that it's always been done. And we need to keep it up. And now here comes this group of people who are going into the synagogues. And they're saying that righteousness is not accomplished by the law. They're saying that righteousness can only be accomplished in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. His righteousness is the only righteousness that can satisfy the righteous requirements of the Holy God. All this stuff that they're saying about Jesus. I know the prophecies Paul would have said. Saul would have said. I know the prophecies that there's going to be the son of man. Who's going to be given authority and established. But he's coming to establish a kingdom. He's coming to restore the throne of David. And wherever Jesus is. Wherever his body is. There's no throne of David being established. And so he was devout in his passion. And these people came up talking about Jesus. And all of a sudden. They was attested to with signs and wonders. There were lame people who were able to walk. There were blind people who were able to see. There were sick people who were healed completely. There were those who were oppressed by demons, and the demons were cast out. Sign after sign, giving credence, verifying, validifying the message of these apostles. But Paul was like many of us tend to be. I already know what I'm supposed to do, and you can't tell me any different. As a matter of fact, not only can you not tell me different. If you do anything to mess up what I'm doing, I'm coming after you. Because if you go against the temple and the way we've been doing things in the temple. And you go against our beliefs that I've been taught and nurtured my whole life. That my father and his father before him and his father before him and his father before him back centuries. All the way back to Benjamin have followed if you disrupt this then you're going against the oracles of God and it is my job to silence you when Stephen came before the Sanhedrin with his message Stephen told him again and again listen God has sent a messenger God sent a messenger in Joseph God sent a savior in David God sent his proclamation to the prophets and again and again and again you have rejected God's Savior, and you've done it again. You've done it ultimately when you reject Jesus Christ. And Stephen, wanting people to be saved, wanting these people, but knowing the hardness of their hearts, accuses them of being deaf to the word, of being hard-hearted, of being not willing to change. And of course, the Bible says when Stephen preached at the close of that, when he accused them of their sin, they got so angry, they gnashed their teeth, they were beyond words, they took him out and they dragged him out to stone him. And those who went to stone him took off their cloaks, took off their coats, laid down their jackets, and they put them at the feet of a young man named Saul. This guy, this guy we're talking about. He was one of them. He was participating in giving approval. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 8, the very first verse says, Saul approved of his execution. Saul approved. He was in favor of picking up stones and killing Stephen. And now we find that not only does he approve of Stephen's execution, he wants to be a part of silencing this group. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging. King James Version says he was laying waste. 
like a boar in a garden, like a, 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 an army devastating a, a, a city. Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. And he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This guy was an enemy of what God was doing. In his own testimony, when he's writing to Timothy. By the way, we have something about this conversion that's amazing. We have the account that Luke records first in Acts chapter 9. We have Paul's testimony before the people in the temple when he's first being accused of bringing Gentiles into the inner court in Acts chapter 22. We have him before Agrippa in Festus telling his testimony again in Acts chapter 26. We have Paul who wrote 13 books of the New Testament. And he becomes very testimonial in some of these. In 1 Timothy, where he's writing to Timothy, he refers to a part of his testimony. When he writes to Philippi, he remembers the goodness of God and how God has saved us in in the book of Philippians. And so we have multiple accounts of his testimony and portions of his testimony. In 1 Timothy, he's writing to Timothy, and he's thanking God who has given him strength. He says, because God was faithful, or judged me faithful, appointing me, Paul, to his service. Verse 13, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. Verse 15, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. It was unlikely that he had actually seen Jesus in the flesh, but he persecuted Jesus' followers. This is the secret police of the Jews. This is the temple guard. This is the man who would get people with him to go and silence these Christians. He was a terrorist. A terrorist of his day. And now what we're going to read today and what we've read today already seems to be primarily Saul's story. I really got to tell you, it's really part of Jesus' story. It's a part of God's redemptive work in the world One of the questions that we always ask when we read a passage of scripture like this and a narrative like this and a story like this is what does this teach me about God? What does this teach me about God the Father? What does this teach me about God the Son, Jesus? What does this teach me about God the Holy Spirit? We also want to know what it shows us about ourselves, what it shows us about mankind. But the scripture always teaches us about God. In our text, which we'll read again as we go through it, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. There are a few things I want us to walk through this text together and just point out some things. If you're following along in your listening guide, please feel free to open it up and, and, and make notes. And you will see that I have listed what, what God does until we get to the last point, And we'll open that up a little bit further in a moment. The first thing is that Jesus comes to Saul. Jesus comes to Saul. Verse 3 says, Now as he went on his way, he, that Saul, approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Get this now. Here's zealous Saul. These people of the way, these methotes, these disciples who are following the Lord Jesus Christ, we've been able to shut them down pretty effectively in Jerusalem. We've had the soldiers, we've picked it, we've gone to their houses and knocked their doors in, had the Temple soldiers grab them and take them to the prisons that were manned by the Jews. And some of them possibly manned by the Romans that the Jews had authority over or were able to cooperate with. And we've had them thrown into prison. And others, knowing we were coming, left. 
and they scattered. And some of them went to Samaria. Some of them went down south toward Egypt. Some of them went up north and almost due north to Damascus toward Syria. And some of them went northwest out toward Greece and Asia Minor and even beyond. All the way to Italy. They, they spread throughout the world. And the Apostle Paul was so, he feels like, all right, we've got a handle on Jerusalem, or we've got enough people doing this in Jerusalem, but they, they got away. We need to go get the ones that got away. And so he went to the high priest, and he went to the Sanhedrin, and he asked for documents, for papers that the Romans would recognize and that the Jewish leaders would recognize. And he asked for permission to go to Damascus, the city in the north, where he knew there was a group of Christians. Now, there was a large population of Jews in Damascus. I don't know if you knew this, but some 60 years later, 20,000 Jews were put to death in the city of Damascus. There was a large population of Jews there. These people, when they would go, they would often go to the synagogue first. They would go talk to the Jews. These were Jews who had come to follow Christ, and now they were being spread around. And so the Apostle Paul wanted to go, and he wanted to shut that down before it got a hold in Damascus. He got permission to go and he was not alone. He had some sort of group with him because his permission was to go get them, lay hold on them, grab them, and drag them back and and imprison them and persecute them. And as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. Damascus, by the way, according to the books that I've studied, how far it was in the, the travel a day, it was probably four to five days travel to get from Jerusalem to Damascus. So he'd been traveling for days, traveling in a group. As they got closer to Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven shone round about him. A light that is in the text brighter than the sun. Now as he went on his way, verse 3, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, what was this light? It was brighter than the sun. Now, we find in Acts 22, when he's giving his testimony there, he sets the time that this happened as the middle of the day. Is the sun bright in the middle of the day? Is the sun bright in that part of the world in the middle of the day? Absolutely. And yet, this was a light that was brighter than the sun. Saul and his companions hit the ground, hit the ground. And the Lord Jesus spoke to him. Now, I want to tell you just some things that I believe are, uh, from, from personal belief and conviction and study uh, that you can or cannot agree with, but I believe that Paul saw Jesus. Jesus appeared to people after his death and resurrection. We know that he appeared to the disciples. We know that he appeared at one time to a group of 500 people. We know that after his resurrection, we just read just a few weeks ago how that Stephen, when he was stoned, looked up and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. I believe in this encounter, Paul saw Jesus. I say that because of one thing in verse 7, the the men who were with Paul, Saul, heard the voice. They couldn't understand the words. They heard a noise, but they saw no one. When Ananias was sent... In, in this same chapter, 9 verse 17, Ananias was sent to Paul. He laid hands on him and he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, the one who appeared to you on the road. He appeared to you on the road. 
Later, in verse 27, after Paul leaves Damascus and he has to sneak out over a wall, we'll get to that in a later account, he comes back and he's being presented to the Christians in Jerusalem. Barnabas took him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he, Saul, had seen the Lord who spoke to him. In his testimony in chapter 2, verse 14, Uh, Paul is giving his testimony, and he says, he reminds them of what Ananias had said, that the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. And of course, Paul in his own testimony repeatedly talks about his conversion encounter and seeing the Lord. Last of all, 1 Corinthians 15, 8, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So I believe that he saw the Lord Jesus Christ in this life. Remember how Stephen had prayed, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge? What's happening here is God is answering that prayer when it comes to Saul. God is preparing to forgive Saul, not only of that sin, but of all of his sins. God is the one who sovereignly saves. And I want us to just kind of kind of bring this home. I know that sometimes when we study the scripture, I tend to get a little academic. Here's what this word means. Here's what's happening here. I want to make sure we understand the context because I take the study of Scripture very seriously. I want us to understand, to the greatest extent that we can, illuminated by the Holy Spirit who indwells us and who wrote this Word, what has taken place. But I think there's an application point here for us. It is that Jesus came to Saul. Saul was a rascal. Saul was a criminal. Saul was a persecutor of the church. Saul was a persecutor of Christ. Saul was a blasphemer. He was insolent. He was foul-mouthed. He was zealous. He was locked in his own belief system that rejected Christ. And Christ came to him. This morning in Sunday school, we were looking and reading the story in Luke 19 of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. I want you to add bad in there. Zacchaeus was a bad wee little man. And a wee little man was he. Zacchaeus was a, a, a Jew who had sold out to the Romans and was a tax collector. As a matter of fact, he was the chief of the tax collectors. And he was a thief by his own admission. And Jesus looked up and saw him and there was nothing in Zacchaeus' life that qualified him to be the recipient of Jesus' attention. As a matter of fact, if it were you and I, our response, our typical response would be, this guy's not worthy of our time. Let's not waste our time upon him. And what I want us to see from this is the amazing love of Christ who does not love you less, he loves you based upon who he is, not who you are and what you've done. And I want to just declare once and for all that there is no one beyond the reach of the grace of God. There is no one. Is it, is it difficult for a rich man to be saved? Yes. Like a camel going through the eye of a needle, according to Jesus. But with God... All things are possible. Is it difficult for a man who is entrenched in his sin and stubborn and hard-hearted and refusing to listen to God? Is it difficult? Can you just, if you look at someone, you say, I just, I think we ought to just give up hope. I think there's no hope for them. I'm here to declare to you today that we have a God 
who seeks and saves the lost. We have a God who actively roams, who actively moves according to His own divine will and according to His own divine purpose. And we need to make sure we don't write anybody off. We need to be praying for God to sovereignly move and work in the hearts and lives of people to bring them to the point of salvation. Jesus came to the most unlikely guy. As a matter of fact, If justice is right, if you get simply what you deserve, when that bright light shone on Paul, it should have just incinerated him. It should just burn him up. And yet, Jesus appeared to him to redeem him. Jesus came to Saul, but not only did he come to Saul, he came convicting of sin. Verse 4, falling to the ground, Saul heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Just in the text, when you steer the name twice, it is to get someone's attention, and it's typically corrective. Saul, Saul, like Martha, Martha, oh Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem. Peter, Peter, and here, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In bringing a person to salvation, there is an initial contact that is instigated by the Holy Spirit of God who convicts of sin and righteousness and judgment. And there is the conviction of sin. And conviction is more than just a bad feeling. Conviction is more than than just feeling like you've done something you shouldn't have done. A couple of things here to note real quick. Jesus is truly identified with his body. He didn't say, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? He said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And we need to recognize the great truth of this. What does this tell us about Jesus? That Jesus is truly identified with his body, the church. He identifies with his people. Every member of the body is a member of Christ. Truly, he bears our griefs and carries our sorrows. Saul was persecuting Jesus when he was persecuting Jesus' people. When he was persecuting Jesus' disciples. But what is the issue of conviction here? What is this conviction? That's taking place. The conviction is what are you going to do with Jesus? It is not primarily this type of conviction. It's not primarily that a person is a liar or immoral or a thief. But that he is such because he has rejected Christ. In John chapter 16 the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin. Verse 17. Of sin because they do not believe upon me. So I want you to understand what's taking place in this conversion experience. Jesus has come and Jesus has condemned. He has pointed out the sin. He is convicted of his rejection against Christ. And then, of course, verse 5, he said, Saul said, Well, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I want to talk about that. Saul's salvation experience is probably not like yours. Anybody here see the Lord Jesus Christ with your eyes and go blind for three days when you got saved? Are you less safe? No. No. His, his experience is a little bit different from ours in the playing out and the experience that he walked through, but these truths of how the Lord Jesus Christ redeems lost people are true for everyone who's been redeemed. He comes to you, and he comes to you, and he comes to you calling you to himself, making you aware that you need a Savior. Making you aware that there is sin that is separated between you and your God. Why are you persecuting me? 
Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. Acts 26. I am Jesus of Nazareth. I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Not only does he reveal his sin and conviction, but he reveals, Jesus reveals who he is. I believe here, according to Paul's own testimonies, that this is where Jesus converted the soul of Saul. Where Jesus saved Saul. Not only does Jesus convict, he reveals himself. And it seems like, boy, this is a really quick salvation experience. It seems like it's abbreviated. But I want to remind you just a few things. Saul knew the gospel. Saul had heard Stephen preach. Saul had heard Peter preach in the temple courtyard. Saul was in Jerusalem when these things were taking place. He knew that they were teaching that Jesus is the Messiah, the righteous one, the Savior, the one who had been risen from the dead. Saul knew the Christian gospel, and that's what prompted his persecution. He had all of the information, but until now, he considered it blasphemy. But now he sees Jesus. Now he hears Jesus. Now he knows that Jesus is alive, that the Messiah lives, the Son of Glory, standing at the right hand of God. I believe he saw what Stephen saw. I believe all the bloodshed that he had partaken in, all the bloodshed that he had led, testified against his heart. And he recognized in this instance he'd been wrong about Jesus. He'd been wrong. Not these people that he'd been persecuting because they were wrong. He had been wrong. Have you ever been convinced you're wrong about something? And I don't mean something that doesn't matter. Have you ever had a belief that you held to that all of a sudden, by whatever means, you become convinced or you you realize that, that you've been on the wrong side of an argument? That you've believed the wrong thing for a long time? I believe that Paul, because of his personality, because of his zeal, because of his commitment seemingly to God, but really to himself and to his religion, the religion that he was pursuing and defending when he comes face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ, he is traumatically exposed that he's missed it, that Jesus is the Messiah. I think this was a traumatic experience for Paul. I think when he looked up and saw the Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord Jesus spoke to him, Paul, in his mind, was thinking or at least experienced or thought over the next three days while he was sitting blind in a room without eating and drinking in Damascus. How could I have been so wrong? Where did I miss this? How could I have missed this? And he was just shattered because now he knows that Jesus is alive. Now he knows that Jesus is the Messiah. He was broken and shattered. Remember in the translation that Oregon read from, uh, Paul, why are you kicking against the pricks? Have you guys ever heard that phrase before? Why are you kicking against the goads? It was an ox goad. It was a stick with a point, and the point was used to drive the oxen and to drive the cattle to make sure they went where you wanted them to go. This was not a leash that was led. This was to correct a path, to say you're off the path, prick, you're off the path, prick. And the picture that is conveyed in that phrase is that the Holy Spirit had been pricking the heart of Saul. The Holy Spirit had been pointing things out to him. The Holy Spirit had been convicting him and he had been steadfast in his denial and now he's confronted and he can't deny anymore. This Jesus is who they say he is. 
This Jesus is who he has said he is. I believe that this conversion was sudden and was shocking. It is Paul's testimony we'll get to in just a moment more. Almost impossible for us to grasp. And there are a lot of people who say, well, this is just a story. And really what's happening here was Saul had been traveling for days and it was hot and it was the middle of the day and he had sunstroke and he had a hallucination brought on by fatigue and emotional distress. There's a whole school of thought that says Paul had an epileptic seizure. And that's what happened here. But that's not what happened here. That is not what happened here according to the text. He said, who are you, Lord? And Jesus revealed himself. I am Jesus. The name means Jehovah's saved. And now the battle was over. He had been kicking against the pricks. God had been pricking. And I believe that conversion takes here. This is what Paul's testimony when he shares about what took place here in Ephesians. I mean, in Philippians chapter 3. Picking up where we left off a minute ago. Paul says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count as everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Not, not what I've done, but what he has done. The righteousness from God, that depends on faith that I may know him. And the power of his resurrection. And may share his suffering. Becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. This is Saul's testimony. Saul's own testimony in Acts 22. Saul says, who are you Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth whom you are persecuting. Now Paul, now Saul is telling, he's explaining what took place back then. He says, those who were with me saw the light, but didn't understand the voice of the one who was speaking with me. They heard a noise, they didn't understand the words. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise, go to Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed to you. He is, he, he, he is acknowledging Jesus, the Lord, as his Lord. He, what is the first sign of a, of a changed life, of a saved life? Submission, surrender. I'm not the boss anymore. You're the boss. What shall I do? What would you have of me? What do you ask of me? Not my will, but thine. What shall I do? The sign of a changed life, full and total submission. And now we see more fully the transformation of his life. Not only did Jesus come to Saul and convict of sin, Jesus converted him. And the result here is that the sinner becomes a son. The sinner becomes a son. The, the terrorist becomes a missionary. Now he is born from above as a babe. Now he is a son of God, a joint heir with Jesus, a recipient of the grace of God. This is, he described himself as the chief of sinners, one who has now received mercy. Hard to imagine a more radical change than this one. But can I just tell you that in reality, every salvation is a radical change. <laughs> every salvation is a radical change. You know, we're going to encounter people in our life that we look at and we say, that guy's a sinner or that girl's a sinner. Those are bad people. They do bad things. Those are immoral people. 
They live an immoral lifestyle. Those are evil people. They harm others. Or we're going to see people who are just kind of going through life. And they don't really good, not really bad. They think of themselves as okay. And I don't know what your individual testimony for many of you, some of you I do. But I know that this is true. That we have a Savior who seeks out sinners. That God in His sovereignty moves and works and convicts and draws. And it is not us that qualify ourselves for God's saving work. He comes to us with the gospel. He comes to us with His Holy Spirit. And He makes us aware that there's a, a problem. That we are spiritually dead. That we are separated from God by sin. And he makes us aware that there is a solution. He reveals to us Christ, a a Savior who died to pay the penalty for sin. The only name under heaven whereby we can be saved. The only means of salvation. The Lord Jesus Christ. He converts our soul. He makes us new. He regenerates us. He turns into something that we've never been before. And the change is just as radical. The outward expression of it may not be as radical. I'm a preacher's kid. I'm a strict preacher's kid. So I don't know if you guys know what strict preachers are like. I'm a, uh, my dad was very, 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 very much a Pharisee of the Pharisees. That's tongue-in-cheek and a joke when I was raised up. Lost most of you that one. But we had a lot of rules that we had to follow in our house. And I was not a rebellious child overtly, covertly somewhat but not an overtly rebellious child. And yet, when I was a child, I became convinced by the Holy Spirit of my... I was nine years old when the Holy Spirit came to me and made me aware that I needed to be saved. I'd heard the gospel. I'd heard plans of salvation. I'd heard the story of Jesus Christ. I'd heard many, many Bible stories that showed the goodness and the grace of God. But one day, it became real to me. One day I understood it wasn't just some sort of philosophical statement or theological uh, creed that we embraced. It was me who was lost and separated from God. It was me that needed to be saved. And as a child, nine years old, I surrendered my life to Christ. And he forgave me of my sins and he made me into something I'd never been before. He made me into a new creation, a believer, the sinner became a son. And it began a life. And it begins just like it did with Saul, just like it has with many of you. It begins a life of obedience, a life of submission, a life of challenges, of learning and growing, a life of growing in faith, a life of now glorifying God and seeking to glorify God in all that we do. I love the story of the conversion of Saul. Not so much because of what it tells me about Saul. But I love the story of the conversion of Saul because of what it tells me about Jesus. Do you know him? If you don't, my prayer is that you will. Father, thank you that you're a God who seeks and saves sinners. Thank you that it's not the healthy that need a physician, it is the sick. And we have to recognize our own soul sickness, our own sentence to death before we'll come to you in repentance and faith. I thank you that you are the God who saves. Thank you that you convict 
of sin. And the sin that, that you convict of is, what are we going to do with you? How are we going to do, respond to you? Are we going to embrace you and submit to you? Or are we going to reject you and continue to go our own way, living as enemies of the cross of Christ? And if there's one here today who is struggling with that or has not even recognized that they're an enemy of the cross, I pray that today you will convict them and you'll just turn on the light. Just like you turned the light on to Saul and you saw the light on the road to Damascus, you'll turn the light on in their heart and they'll see themselves for who they are and they'll see you for who you really are, the Savior. I pray, Father, that they will respond to you in repentance and faith and you will regenerate them, that you will make them new. I pray that our church will be a church that is known for making much of Jesus. That our church will continue, our lives, us in this room, will be those who stand forth and proclaim and share the wonderful grace of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. How that there is no one beyond the reach of your grace. How that your grace is sufficient. Your grace is sufficient. And may we share your saving work in our lives that others can see the sufficiency of your work of your grace to save. Father, we love you. Use us to be the light of the world. In your name I pray. Amen.